Greetings and welcome to Fun to Know with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, comedian, writer, and poet, Bucky Sinister. There was like all these like guys that would read poems at Chameleon that were very like kind of offensive and very sexist. But we had a lot of women in the crowd, and they loved coming for that. Why? Because it's their chance to yell at men. And, and it was a powerful thing. It was this powerful feminist thing that kind of happened organically, where there was women who came pretty much just to yell at men. They weren't writers, but it was their only societal chance they had to tell men that they sucked and to shut up. And they would say things from the crowd where it's just like, no, this is, they're yelling at their boss or the guy they work with or the construction workers on their walk to work. Really, they just save it all up. And when they come in here, I've made a safe spot for them to come in and tell men to shut up. Hello and welcome to the first edition of the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. I started this venture as an excuse to make conversation with artists and writers of many stripes and over the opening episodes, we'll talk to musicians, sculptors, poets, and comedians about their lives and their work. Nothing excites me more than a great storyteller telling a great story, and I pick my guests with an ear for people with fresh perspectives who can really spin a yarn. For those unfamiliar with me, I've been toiling away at the edges of public radio for over 30 years now, mostly as a music programmer and radio host in stations from Philadelphia, San Francisco, and Alaska, and I also write about film for Falker.com, that's P-H-A-W-K-E-R, and for the last 13 years I've hosted Jazz with Dan Buskirk on WPRB Princeton, where I play jazz old and new as well as conducting the occasional interview with musicians. In recent years, those interviews have become more fulfilling as I've spoken to such musical luminaries as saxophone colossus Sonny Rollins, band leader and drummer Chico Hamilton, and the bassist and composer William Parker. The rise of interview podcast has awakened my lifelong love of the talk show, which stretches back for me to the early 70s when Johnny Carson, Dick Cavett, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, and Dinah Shore all graced the airwaves, interviewing a wide range of entertainers and writers but I became even more intrigued by the late-night Tomorrow show on NBC with the late Tom Snyder, who brought his own mercurial personality into an eccentric mix of guests who would never be seen on a talk show that ran earlier in the day, including John Waters, John Lydon, and Charles Manson himself. I'd like to thank some of the many people I've worked with and learned from along the way, including Kathy O'Connell, host and creator of WXPN's Kid Corner, a call-in talk show aimed at children, where the wonderful Ms. O'Connell does great radio as well as extending the near-dead art of the kids' show host. It stretches back to Soupy Sales, Chuck McCann, and a raft of others who were once a TV kid's best friend. Also, David Dye of the World Cafe for his graciousness. Amy Miller from Radio Segway and the late-lamented KUSF in San Francisco for her encouragement. And Terry Gross and producer Amy Salad of Fresh Air, where I toiled for a few years as a young researcher and was able to study at the feet of Masters in the Art of Conversation. It seems like there's a lot more to be said, but there will be more episodes to say it in. My guest for this first episode is writer, poet, and comedian Bucky Sinister, who has been writing and performing in the San Francisco Bay Area since the late 1980s. I first came across Bucky in 1991 when he hosted a spoken word reading at the Divey Bar of the Chameleon in San Francisco's Mission District before the neighborhood was awash in fancy restaurants. Along with the nearby Café by Bar readings, the Chameleon had a reputation for being a rowdy, beer-fueled event with free dialogue among readers and hecklers, and for the beautiful work by writers Michelle T., Beth Lissick, David Lerner, and Eli Coppola, along with a free-for-all range of homeless, 
helpless and deranged individuals who were drawn to this little stage week in and week out. I, too, was there, struggling to find my writer's voice and always being impressed with how the good-natured Bucky could juggle such a volatile cast of characters and still keep the vibes groovy. Bucky's own writing was direct, honest, and frequently humorous, almost like a egoless Henry Rollins or Charles Bukowski. Well, the chameleon and the world that met there are long gone, but Bucky Sinister continues on. He's the author of a number of books chronicling his life and the shaggy characters with which he has crossed paths, including Asphalt River, King of the Road Kills, Whiskey and Robots, and Time Bomb Snooze Alarm, as well as the sobering manifesto Get Up, a 12-step guide to recovery for misfits, freaks, and weirdos. He has also read his work for the recordings What Happens in Narnia Stays in Narnia, and his latest, Sensitive Badass, from which we'll hear a few selections. Rounding out Bucky's credits is an appearance in Willow Creek, the recent Sasquatch movie directed by Bobcat Goldthwaite. In recent years, Bucky has left the spoken word world behind and has reinvented himself as a stand-up comic. I met him late one afternoon in the basement of Lost Weekend, just a few blocks from the old chameleon in the mission. Lost Weekend is a video store in the midst of transformation itself, from a video rental store to a mixed-use video store slash small venue. Bucky and his alternative comedy group, The Business, were set to perform there later that night as we began our discussion. My lovely wife Carrie opined that I keep it pretty quiet for this interview, but when someone has a great story to tell, I'm happy to stand back and get out of the way. Let's hear a short example of Bucky's work, and then we'll go right into our discussion. This is called My Date with Wonder Woman. After a long, dry dating drought, I placed a personal ad. Single white male, 33, sinks independent woman of action. Now, imagine a movie in which Pam Greer saves the day and gets the man in the end. You should be Pam Greer, and I will be that man. I will be your backseat Betty as we ride off into the sunset on your Indian motorcycle. So I waited. I heard from the polyamorous Wiccan. Then, from the satanic performance artist who was really into blood play. Then the beautiful art school girl who said my picture was hot and her boyfriend thought so too and I'd have to be willing to sign a digital release form for their webcam. I was about to cancel my account, give up completely, when I got a response from wwoman at justiceleague.com. I think I'm the woman for you, she said. I'm of Greek descent, but grew up in Brazil. I moved here as an adult, and as I am very busy and very successful in my career, I don't have a lot of time to meet men. Sounded good to me. I emailed her my number. She called me. It sounded really noisy. Are you calling from your car? I asked. No, she said. I'm calling from my plane. So you're on a flight and calling from that white phone attached to the seat in front of you? No, she said. It's my plane. I'm flying it. I use it for work. We can talk about that later. I'll be in town tonight. Let's go to dinner. When she showed up, I was stunned. She was built like a 40s pinup model with his Betty Page haircut. She ordered the steak rare and ate it casually while she regaled me with tales of adventure. We got along famously, and after dinner, she invited me to her place for a nightcap. So as she's making drinks, I'm checking out her library. Mostly books on criminal law and true crime. Not really my thing. 
but next to the books are pictures of runways and airport hangars with nothing else in them. What's with these pictures, I asked. Those, she said, those are my plane. I'm the only one who can see it. There had to be something. I can't fall for a sane woman. I've put up with JFK conspiracy theorists, believers of fairies and elves, new agers who read auras, and girls who think Morrissey is seen directly to them, but never, no, never have I put up with an invisible plane. Look, Wanda, I said, it's getting late and I have to get going. It's not Wanda, she said. Forget it, just go. I'll call you, I said, turning for the door. But then I stopped, unable to move. I looked down. There was a rope around me. Wanda had lassoed me. She pulled me close. You don't have to call me. The only thing you have to do is tell the truth. I'm here with uh, Bucky Sinister, a, uh, a citizen of San Francisco since uh, the early 90s, I believe. Yeah, 89, actually. 89. Uh, I first met Bucky years ago at the legendary Chameleon uh, spoken word reading in the, in the mission where he uh, was the genial host for all sorts of uh, pandemonium uh-huh. and yeah. chaos. Uh, in the years since uh, then, I've uh, lost track of Bucky a bit, but he's, he's been through quite a journey. He's <laughs> yeah. been... Through uh, the journey of sobriety, he's written a number of books whose names I had in uh, in front of me at one point. It was a ta- oh. uh, snooze alarm, time bomb. Yeah, time bomb, snooze alarm. It's time bomb, snooze alarm. That's the most recent one. That's a book of poems. <laughs> had, uh, two self-help books, one called Get Up, the other one called Still Standing. Uh, there's another poetry book you can still find uh, called uh, All Blacked Out and Nowhere to Go. And I think uh, Whiskey and Robots is out of print. That one's a hard one to find. Uh, and then also King of the Road Kills, I believe, is, is out that, of print. Was that the There's first? copies around. King of the Road Kills? Was yeah, that the first? Yeah, that's the first full-length collection. Uh, that one's uh, the old man you press. And, yeah, that, one's, that one should be pretty easy to find, like used. But, uh, you know, yeah, I, I believe it's gone. I believe it's out of print. So. And, uh, and uh, in uh, recent years, he has reinvented himself as a stand-up comedian as well? Yeah, about seven years now. Uh, so, he'll be... You know, he'll be uh, still very young for a comedian. Like, that's still, like... That's kind of, like, crossing over from beginner to intermediate kind of level. Like, really, for a comedian. And that's, you know... So it's like I'm still, even though I am like Louis C.K. and I are like the same age, uh, he started more at like 18 and I started at 37 and that's the difference. Who do you think is more successful at this point? Oh, Louis C.K. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he invested a little bit better than I did. But no, it's, it's, it is a thing in comedy though. Like, you know, when people in the industry see me, they kind of do the math and they figure, well, if this guy's, this guy's 45, he should be a lot better by now. You know what I mean? Because they kind of assume that, like, I like almost every comic starts between the ages of eighteen and twenty-two. Yeah. Like um, that. That's like nineteen. That's like ninety percent of the comics. If not more, maybe it might even be like ninety-five percent of the comics. Um, that's the overwhelming age kind of thing, and it's it's rare for someone. There's always a couple kids who start at like sixteen or whatever, like Bobcat or, or Chris Rock, or whatever. They'll start in their teenage years and Dave Chappelle. Yeah, 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 yeah. and uh, Bill Hicks, people like that, and um, you know. But usually people like you wait till they're at least eighteen, and then uh, you know sometimes twenty one, but like they get started college or whatever. And so me starting at thirty seven was like a real thing. Like a lot of people didn't even think it would stick. A lot of people thought it was like a 
some kind of midlife crisis or whatever, which it kind of was, I guess. But you know, it's like I'm serious about my crises. You know, that's the difference. So, <laughs> well, let's let's start back uh, at the at the beginning, at the at the birth of of, of Bucky Sinister. Where oh, where do you where do you yeah. hail from? Yeah, well, I started that that whole thing started as a, a thing that you know me and my friends gave each other punk names. Uh, Bucky was already uh, like a kind of a, a nickname for me, but the Sinister Pride. We all gave each other kind of like punk names and, and, and went to sign up at this open mic poetry reading in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. And, uh, you know, we thought, well, you know, it was, I don't know why we thought it was going to be really uptight because it was at the place where they had punk shows. But we're like, they had a poetry reading here, wouldn't come in there and like ruin it. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, and so we, we wrote all these poems and, you know, it's like 50 mile drive to Little Rock from where we were. You know, it takes a little bit of a commitment. You know, you, you get there. You're like, that's where you're going for the night. You're not going somewhere else. And uh, we got there, and people were like, um, they all chickened out but me. And and, and I was like, you guys, you guys are wieners. Like, what's wrong with you? And I went up and did mine. And, you know, of course, everybody liked it. You know, and and it wasn't like old ladies read poems. It was like a bunch of art students. Do you remember you know? what? Do you remember what the poem was about? The poems were like they were like a series of like greeting cards, as if they're written by serial killers. Um, like just like love love poems from you know like Ted Bundy or whatever. <laughs> and, and you know, I thought this is gonna this is gonna freak them all out because I'm writing about serial killers. And no, they just kind of loved it because it was art students, you know, and, you know, a couple girls were there and they were like, are you going to come back next time? And I'm like, y you bet I am. It was, you know, at, at 18, uh, oh, girls like it when you do this? I think I'll do a lot of it. <laughs> what, and, what were you like as an 18 year old? Oh, I was a mess. It was a real mess because, you know, I just kind of like, you know. Well, since I was seventeen, I was I thought I was going to be an evangelist, you know, and and then you know I your kinda, your father was an evangelist. Yeah, my dad was an evangelist, but I thought that's what I was going to do too, you know, and and you know, at seventeen, I just kind of had that big major like spiritual personal crisis freakout thing, and I, I left the church. I didn't really know what to do, and I just got really into like drinking and drugs and punk. And what stuff. what kind of what kind of uh, a preacher was your father? Well, he like, you know he's like, just kind of a traveling evangelist, you know, and. uh he he's pretty hard, you know. Like he he was kind of funny a little bit, which in our church was like you know just even being a little funny was like very radical, you know. So he he made people laugh, you know. And I kind of kind of saw that and I liked that, you know. And I you know always always liked that how he would get us a real serious message across with humor, you know. And then he would get real serious, and when he get serious, it mattered because this guy's just joking around. You know, first half an hour of his thing, he was joking around. And then all of a sudden, in the last 15 minutes, he gets real serious, and everybody everybody get real freaked out. And I really like that. I like how he just kind of manipulated moods and stuff. You know, where I had, like, you know, other people around the time were, like, hellfire preachers. And that's just, like, where it's just kind of, it's just like a one long Henry Rollins scream from beginning to end, you know. And, you know, after a while, you're just like, okay, dude, whatever. You've been screaming at us for 45 minutes. Just shut up. You know, so my dad had a little bit more variety. So I really liked what he was doing. I thought I'd do it too. And then I was like, man, I don't, I don't really believe this. So I had to, I had to go, you know, I couldn't fake it. Was that friction between you and him or? Yeah. We were never really the same after that. You know, I mean, he, he wouldn't care really if I wasn't an evangelist or whatever, but if, if I was still going to church a lot and still believing that it, I really don't think he would care what I was doing in my life. You know, as long as I was kind of paying my own way. And uh, <laughs> pay my own way going to church on Sundays. I don't think he'd care if I was like doing whatever. Like I don't think he would have any shame. It's like you know, if I, he he's one of those guys. It's like if you have a job and you go to it, you're cool. 
Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter what job it is. Like, you know, it's like... Be a productive yeah. citizen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's very much that kind of Eisenhower-type mentality, you know. <laughs> so... So you became the uh, the punk rock poet at yeah, 18? Yeah, and I thought, like, you know, I was really inspired by a lot of, like, the spoken word stuff going around at the time. And, you know, what, what was, stuff was inspiring? Uh, well, John Giorno had it, you know, Poetry Systems, which is a record label I, I, you know, really advise you to look up and see what was on there. Right, they had uh, the record with William Burroughs and Laurie Anderson. Yeah, well, and, it was that, that one record, the Smack My Crack compilation. That yeah, someone yeah. had that. You know, we were, like, you know, in college, like, you know, before file sharing, you know, in the, in the 80s, what you did was you swapped out and you made cassettes. Right, you would record cassette, you burn a cassette for all the kids, burn a cassette of this album, you know, and you swap albums. So one guy has like a like a one record, and everyone in the dorm who wants it has has a copy of it on cassette, and it was just kind of going around. I found this thing, and I didn't know what it was, you know, and and I didn't even copy the title tracks down, so I didn't know it's like it's like Jim Carroll and like Williams Burroughs and like, mm-hmm. and everything like every other song was like, there was a song, then a spoken word piece, and a song and a spoken word piece. So it was like. Music that was really hard to find at the time, like Demanda Gloss and the Swans and stuff like that. Tom, Tom Waits cut on there, too. Talking I think about so. Cars. I, think, I think there's yeah. a Tom Waits thing in there, but like, you know, and I didn't even copy down the names of the tracks. And so years, it took me years to really kind of rediscover these guys that I just listened to a bunch of times and like, oh, I have known about Jim Carroll. <laughs> like when I read Basketball Diaries, like two years later, I was like, oh, I did know about this. This is that guy from that record. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it took me a while to put it all together, but. You know, I was really into that, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do what Henry Rollins is doing, you know, with spoken word stuff, but without a band. And uh, that didn't really work. Um, I found out people really cared about him because of the band and not, but I thought they, I genuinely liked Henry because of what he was doing with his spoken word. So I thought other people would too, and they didn't. You know, I tried for a long time to be that guy, and, and it didn't work out. <laughs> thought it would take. This was a very aggressive delivery and everything. Well, he had like, well, there was like the poems on on Black Flag's Family Man uh, record that you, that you can hear for this. Or there's also, uh, what, but there's this one uh, I had on cassette. So I want to say there's one tape he did called uh, Big Ugly Mouth. And it's him telling these stories. And if you listen to that and you listen to the comedy I'm doing now, or if you hear the poetry I did back then, it's very similar. It's like that, still that same kind of, you know, still kind of thing. And it was like, it was like kind of like preaching, but it wasn't. But it was about your own life instead of like what the Bible says, you know. And I, because I kind of like that. And that's that's your own parables, Buc- Bucky's parables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I kind of set out to do. And uh, I still think what where I was in where I was in spoken word when I started is a lot closer to stand up comedy than where poetry is now. Like I don't think it's really that much of a switch. I just kind of think I'm more. Found it. I think the comedy scene's more accepting of what I do than the poetry scene is. Yeah, and that's just the way it changed. You know, and luckily the comedy scene was kind of ready for a long form rambling storyteller. Uh, you know, when I when I showed up, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, because like spoken word stuff, the stage time just dropped, and and like everybody wants these short poems. You know, it's got to be three minutes on and off, and you can't really. Did that come out of the slam yeah, movement and everything? Yeah, slam kind of absorbed the entire spoken word scene to where it's like that was the only place where the crowds are going. And it also changed people's minds. Even if it wasn't a slam, people thought that what was done there was a poem. So when I would do poems that didn't rhyme and didn't have a certain cadence, uh, or even poems that switched emotional value halfway through, um, they would, you know... Like I, I really famous for it, like this kind of Batman poem that I did, or it's like all the other universe of Bruce Wayne, and, and the whole idea is that like um, 
and you know it's like it starts off and there's a universe in which Bruce Wayne is poor and I have my shit together and and in the poem Bruce and I are friends and, and he's just a fuck up and he's not a superhero <laughs> and and it's really kind of funny and everyone laughs at the whole idea and about how you know he lives in this beat up trailer park in Arkansas and at the end like you know uh, Bruce is kind of like breaking down and he's all like you know like what's wrong with my life what what happened and I had to console him by telling him like there's this other universe and when you're a superhero and no one gives a shit about me <laughs> and <laughs> it's funny because that's the one poem where like some people some people get it and they cry and then other people they laugh and the people who are crying get really mad like what a, and that's why I think it's like one of my greatest achievements because it really is up to the viewer. Like it's whether it's a sad or funny piece, I don't know. It's it's totally up to your own personal experience. If you relate to it on one level, you just think it's funny. If you relate to it on this other level, it's the saddest thing you've heard, you know. And it's really great that it's like that. It exists I, I, I feel I'm I, I'm revealed now because I did giggle a little bit just at your uh, synopsis there. Well, yeah. Well, it's it's a way I put it too. I mean, kind of going to, but I mean, you're almost kind of also laughing at the cleverness and the and the, and the trick of it, you know. This is um, the other universe of Bruce Wayne. There's an alternate universe in which Bruce Wayne is poor and I have my shit together. Without money, there's no Batman. There's no Batmobile. There's no Batcave, no utility belts, much less a cool butler and a trusted sidekick. Without Batman, there's no crime fighting. There's no hot vigilante action. There's no pensive brooding on the rooftops of Gotham. In this universe, Bruce Wayne drinks alone in his trailer home in Arkansas. Bruce has one friend, me. He calls me in the middle of the night. Hey, it's Bruce. Can you come get me? I'm feeling real low. I can tell by the sound of his voice that he's been dumped again. In this universe, Bruce Wayne ain't that lucky in love. I pull up outside his trailer in my convertible 63 Lincoln Continental. Bruce makes his way inside the car, reeking of whiskey and cigarettes. She's gone, he says. Can we stop by the store? When we get to the store, Bruce hobbles in. His knees and feet have seen better days. He has a couple of vertebrae in his lower back that cracked and healed poorly that gives him constant pain. He has chronic headaches. The VA hospital won't do anything about. They say it's psychosomatic. I buy Bruce another bottle of whiskey and we go back to my place. I know he doesn't want to talk. He just doesn't want to be alone. I turn on the TV and we watch as he drinks. We watch The Tonight Show with Lenny Bruce. Tonight's guest is Jimi Hendrix. He's plugging the album he just cut with Miles Davis. The kind of Blue Haze experience? He's asleep by the time Late Night with Bill Hicks comes on. During the guest bit, when Richard Pryor's talking about the cure for multiple sclerosis, I hear Bruce talking, unawake but not rested. Bruce talks in his sleep, and I would let him, but when he starts screaming, It's not fucking right! It's not fucking right! It's not fucking right! I have to wake him. When he finally realizes he's awake, he instinctively moves for the whiskey. 
He's shaking so hard he can't pour it. So he drinks it right out the bottle. I sit next to him and hold him close to me. It's okay, Bruce. There's another universe out there in which everyone loves you. Children read about you in comic books. Adults make movies about you. And you symbolize justice in human form. Bruce looks up. And in this other universe, he asks. What are you? Bruce, I say. Don't you concern yourself with that. Uh, but, you know, I was doing stuff like that, and, and people, like, in, in the slang community, the writers kind of liked it, but the audiences were not feeling it. And they didn't really understand what it was. They've been trained to accept that poetry is this other thing. I'm like, all right, it's time for me to go. You know, there was, like, these poetry slams, and there was 100 people there. 99 of them thought it was great and having a great time. I'm the one guy in the back saying, hey, this is dumb. I, I was and, like and, you know, at that point, it's like, look, maybe... Maybe I should go. Maybe it's maybe the problem. They're having good. Let them have a good time. It's time for me to go somewhere else. Like I can't change ninety nine people's minds. I can't change this whole night to be what I want it to be. You know, uh, and that's when I just had to kind of let go. And, and all right, it's time to either either I got to start an entirely different spoken word series and and with my own flavor of stuff handpick everyone so the audience is trained in a certain way or I can just do stand up comedy which I've always wanted to do and everything's ready for me so I, I just I switched over I, I was you know around the, the, the fringes of that spoken word scene as well and I yeah. remember when the slam thing got popular and my my, my impression was sort of like a, you know I, I got into poetry because I, I didn't want to compete like if I wanted to compete I would have become a, 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 an athlete or something you know yeah, and like yeah. now I'm into poetry and I'm being asked to compete you know the, the, the shame of it was that it, it changed it homogenized the voice because in the early days you would have you know a funny poet and a political poet and a sad poet and you'd have just some old lady reading about her cats and then you'd have like some homeless guy you know reading about jesus and you know and it was all these different voices and all these different styles and you'd hear all these different things and after a while everything became one voice and every poem sounds the same now at a poetry slam i mean you just go to any any slam poet and say uh what's what's poetry voice and they'll they'll just laugh and they'll and they'll do it for you you know, it's the da 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 like that kind of thing. And it's just everybody that reading will have the same thing. And as much as they make fun of it, they all do it. And, and you know, that's the thing. In, the, in comedy, there, there is a variety of voice. You know, there's like could be a Mitch Hedberg style comic fits right in with like a Lewis Black, you know. And then like they'll all be together. They'll be like a kind of a, and even I'll see at a showcase night, you know, at a club like the Punchline, I'll see one comedian who's blatantly sexist or another guy who's doing something kind of racist along with like, you know, the very liberal left wing comics, the, you know, like they're, we're all in a, on the same stage, like no matter what the thing. And it's like in poetry, it became like one politic and it's like a politic I agree with, you know, I'm a registered green party guy. I agree with all that stuff, but it's like now it's just kind of dull and it's predictable and art shouldn't be predictable. If a guy gets up there and you know what he's going to do, uh, he's lost, you know, and, and that's the kind of the thing. It's like when the, when the comedy night, you, next person gets up, you don't know what's going to come out of that mouth. <laughs> you don't know what it's going to sound like. You don't know what the tone's going to be. You don't know the politics of it or anything until you hear it. 
and uh, that's kind of exciting. Can we can we uh, go back to a little bit to? Uh, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Oh no, no, no. But I wanted to talk about you with the chameleon because oh, it, yeah. for for me, I first came to San Francisco and it was yeah. a, a pretty. Uh, Vivid and exciting experience. Uh, the the crowd yeah. that came to the chameleon. Yeah. The- okay. First of all, when 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 I moved to, I went to L.A. first, and and there was a lot of there was a lot of really good poetry there, and that's where I kind of really decided I want to be a writer. And and those people helped me a lot. There's one guy named S.A. Griffin, uh, who was actually one of my mentor kind of idol guys. I just read there was a lot of little zines and stuff, and I read everything these guys wrote, um, and I realized you could really say something with your poems. And I was still kind of messing around, just trying to read weird stuff. And I was like, oh, you can actually do something. And I got really into that. And I started reading a lot of poems. And I got into that. And, and you know, you go to poetry readings in L.A. And you'd see, like, Ali Sheedy or somebody like that read. You know, I mm-hmm. saw her read a bunch of poems right out of rehab one night. And and then, you know, but, you know, occasionally I'd see a San Francisco poet. And they were, like, so cool. You know, and it was like, I, you know, I heard about all this stuff going on up here. And so, you know, this is where the beats were from. So I came up here in search of that. And, you know, in search of... Poetry and punk. And I had the two things I was looking for, and and uh, you know I got to the punk shows, and there were people's parents were dropping them off outside. I was like, "Well, how <laughs> punk is this? Your dad knows you're here." You know what I mean? And then uh, you know a lot of great music, but it just was like everybody was kind of from better families and stuff, and you know their parents were supportive of them and stuff. And then um, I went to the Cafe Babar, which is at Twenty Second and Guerrero at the time. Oh, yeah. And I went in there, and it was just a bunch of insane people, like reading poems in basically a small corrugated tin box. Who was in that crowd? Oh, that night it was—I know David Lerner was there, and, and you know, Vampire Mike Cassell and Julie Vinograd when she was when she was honorary and scary. Like I don't think a lot of people know her now. She's such a sweet lady right now, but it is like she was kind of mean. She's kind of intimidating, and uh, she'd heckle your poems. And uh, I can still hear her going like, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah." Like it was a lot of that. Like you do some line, you like really you're having a hard time getting it out, and she's like, "Hmm." It's like that thing that's like, "Hey, don't you even me? This hurt. This hurt me to write." And but it was just like, and then some of them were just so good. I was like, these people are insane. And like Danielle Willis was around. And Kathleen Wood, and they were both were uh, exotic dancers who worked at a, at a local uh, strip club, and uh, you know, and they were kind of hot, and uh, you know, they had I don't know, I was just like, man, what is this? Like, this is amazing. Uh, so I got really into the spoken word scene, and when I had an opportunity to start my own night, I basically went around and found all the people who got heckled the most at all of the readings and uh i like i got tom stolmar because i actually saw david Lerner strangle him one night uh, in the middle of a reading and uh he just he's like you know Lerner said something about his poem and he goes uh hey uh uh have a heart learner if you don't have one maybe we could cut your girlfriend open and you could use hers something like that i wasn't even really have paid attention and Lerner just like stood up and just like shot up and just Get a Bart Simpson style, like just started strangling him, and it had to kind of peel him off. And, and I was so I was like, okay, we're gonna invite Stolmar to like feature. He, he gets a he gets a response. Let's get him. Yeah, yeah, totally. Let's <laughs> let's get all the people no one likes and put them in there. Let's have this be like, let's see if I can find like just all the people who can't really kind of catch a break. Ones that don't have a click or a faction because there was like little groups, oh, yeah. and I'm gonna find everyone out of a group, everyone who doesn't belong. Everyone, you know, who's just kind of like maybe the worst poets I can find. Uh, I invited just like if you were like homeless and insane, I'd be like, if you come to this reading, I'll give you a beer. Like, you know, <laughs> and I did. I gave a lot of beers to the homeless. Um, and uh, yeah, so 
uh, God, you know, so I just invited all of them and I didn't tell any of the cool poets for a long time. <laughs> and it was weird because like people would just find it and they would just stick their flag in and say, this one's ours. Like the Cafe Babar people don't run this one. The North Beach guys don't run this one. And at the time, there weren't a whole lot of people under 30 at the poetry readings. If you're under 30 and reading poems, there's probably something wrong with you. Uh, <laughs> something bad had happened. And uh, so I found all them, and they, they all kind of made a place. There. Everybody was like, hey, you know what? This is a place for younger people to read. And so we all just kind of flocked there and just kind of stuck our... And by the time the Cafe Babar people showed up, I had a whole crowd of people who were new in town. You know, because every summer there was a bunch of weird people that just showed up in San Francisco because it was super cheap to live here. And uh, just the weird people from all over the country come here for the summer. So a lot of the Babar people showed up. And, uh, you know, there was a whole bunch of people that didn't really know who they were and just gave them a whole bunch of shit. And they were like, <laughs> this is the scariest place I've ever been to. I'm like, yes, it is. And uh, just kind of said, well, what do we, we make the worst people possible? Well, we put them in charge. You know, what happens? You know, and that that's what I was really into. You know, I had three regulars who were homeless. And... The Patton Oswalt has this uh, stand-up comedy routine about this homeless comic named Dr. Pepper. Uh, and it's very much like that. It was like, these guys were so far out there that, like, even if you're trying to be cool and edgy and weird and transgressive and, and just, like, you know, just kind of shocking, you couldn't really, because you weren't committed to living in a cardboard box like Keith Savage was. And he was going to come Savage, out. Yeah, he yeah. was going to come out with some more far-out shit. And Omer was there. Omer. Uh, uh, you know, you're not going to get weirder than Omer. And you're not going to get weirder than Jerry Miley, who was actually an extremely smart man, who would just sit in the library all day and read. Yeah. That's all he did. Oh. That was his life. And he had an amazing mind. He just could not really filter it out very well. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, this is kind of before uh, Omer really Omer, went off the deep end. Omer, I heard uh, from somebody else, was actually a regular on Howard Stern for a while. Have you heard this? He no, went... no, no. Uh, well, here's here's the story, and there's a little bit. I might be able to dig it up for you. Uh, it, he um, he he broke into like Yoko Ono's house because uh, he's obsessed with John Lennon, and he thought, well, like John Lennon made Yoko Ono famous, and Yoko's going to make me famous. Yeah, yeah. And he like broke into her house or something and just to kind of, I think, leave some stuff there. Like, it wasn't even like malicious, but he got arrested and they were like, this is some wingnut trying to kill her. Like, they were really afraid. And, uh, and he was, that was his story. The story was so weird. It was just like, like, really, this is your idea. You're going to get famous by breaking into her house. And somehow it showed up. Someone, one of the people that called up Howard and was like, he had some guy in on there just call him with the weird celebrity stuff. It's like, get this. Here's something happened. So Howard bailed him out of jail. And uh, on the fact that he'd come on the show. And so, yeah, he did appear on the show, but apparently Howard made fun of him a lot. Uh, and uh, he didn't go back. And every time I tried to ask Omer about it, he would ditch, <laughs> he would dodge the question. And I was like, what, what happened? He's like, yeah, I know Howard. And that would be it, you know. But, you the, know. De the detail I heard, and you know, it's probably gone into, into legend, the whole story at this point. Oh, sure. Was yeah. that uh, Omer was a very small guy. He was, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know if he was five foot. Mostly hair. Supposedly, he knocked on 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 uh, Yoko's door, and she opened the door, and he zoomed in on, underneath her, and then hid in the apartment. And then she had to like call the police to like yeah, ferret him that. out and find him. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> so these, these were the people. He was who, a regular. Yeah, yeah, he was a regular. So I mean, you're not going to be more far than this guy. And so it's like, what do you want to say now? <laughs> you know, that was my thing. It's like, what do you want to say? You 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 want to try to shock us? You won't. 
this guy's coming up after you. You know? So really, who are you, kid? And what do you want to say? Is this really who you are? And that's why I really try to get down to it, everyone in there. It's like, stop the pretense. We will heckle the pretense out of you. But if we know you're being real, this crowd will shut up. And they did. And that was like really powerful moments. Like when Eli Coppola would read something yeah. and the whole place would get dead quiet. Because, David West, I remember yeah, saying yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a few people who got mad respect there. And why? Because they were being honest. You know, and it was the thing. It was like we were yelling at bullshit. But there was no way to negatively heckle something there. You didn't have comments on YouTube. You know what I mean? <laughs> like now it's so easy for people to be negative. There's a whole generation just, you know, being raised in the comment section. And all they're doing is, you know, calling people horrible names and, 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 and trashing stuff. I, I put up a, a video of my uh, two-year-old child on video and somebody wrote underneath him, looks like a fag. Yeah, 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 totally. And it's like, that's, and you couldn't say anything. And it was like, especially like in the 80s and, and into like, you know, up to 92, there was this whole thing of like, America's fine. Everything's great. Shut up, be happy. All this stuff. It was, you know, uh, your your country's looking out for you. And there was no voice. There's no way to say no. It's not it's not right. And we, we, we had to use art. We made records and stuff that said that. And that's what was so thing. But one of the things that would happen is, you know, there was like all these like guys that would read poems at the chameleon that were very like kind of offensive and very sexist. But we had a lot of women in the crowd and they love coming for that. Why? Because it's their chance to yell at men. <laughs> and, and it was a powerful thing. It was this powerful feminist thing that kind of happened organically where there was women who came pretty much just to yell at men. They weren't writers, but it was the only societal chance they had to tell men that they sucked and to shut up. And they would say things from the crowd where it's just like, no, this is, they're yelling at their boss or the guy they work with or the construction workers on their walk to work. Really, they just save it all up. And when they come in here, I've made a safe spot for them to come and tell men to shut up. And that's so fucking strong. It's so powerful. I Somebody remember, I have a favorite heckle. Somebody was up on stage, a guy, and he had the line in this poem, I fucked her hard. Yeah, yeah. And he said that, you know, really, I fucked her hard. And then there was a pause. And Linda Johnson in the back said, ouch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and everybody laughed at him and he yeah, uh, hopefully yeah. felt like an idiot yeah it's a place where yeah. these self-important men would come and women got to tell them to be quiet to yeah. shut up shut their mouth fucking stop talking <laughs> and you know it's like a lot of women really hadn't had an opportunity like that you know where where would you get it you can't, like <laughs> go on the guy's youtube page we didn't have that we had to do it in person so it was kind of wild it was kind of that was one of the most unexpected things that happened i never planned and just kind of happened orga organically you know and i just i just made it i made it a place where you could be safe to tell someone what you thought of their poems you know and it's god i mean that's completely gone there's no poetry readings like that anymore, as far as I know, like anywhere. That was a unique, uh, unique poetry reading. That was, was yeah, I mean, I kind of like amped it up there, but I mean, it was kind of happening. You get heckled at the Paradise Lounge, and you get heckled at you know Cafe Babar quite a bit, you know. And it was kind of a thing that, like, you know, like at a poetry reading, someone would be in the back going, "You suck," <laughs> <laughs> you know. It usually wasn't the whole crowd like we end up getting at the Chameleon. But it would be like one or two guys in the back, and, and like oh, it's like this blows. Like you know, you read the same thing last week. You know, that's kind of you know. And David Lerner's famous, just like why don't you try extending that metaphor one more time? You know, <laughs> like he would he would heckle you with like he would heckle your grammar. 
<laughs> he would tell you when you had a split infinitive or, or a dangling modifier. He would just call it out from the front. He was like editing your pieces. So I don't know, man. It was that's kind of gone, and, and you know that's what kind of toughened me up, man. I was also reading between punk bands at the time, and little warehouse shows. The warehouse shows are gone, but you know you have warehouse shows, and they'd always have poets, poets before mm-hmm. and after. Because why? Well, the, you know it's going to take the other time for the other band to get here. We don't want people to leave. So you know, there's some times that I read it, like you know Gilman Street, you know, because yeah. the band was late. You know, and, and, you know, I just get up there and, you know, me and five other poets get there. We just round robin poems until the band showed up. And, uh, hey, you know, the kids who came to see Alice Donut don't really want to see uh, you read poems. And uh, but fuck it. You know, I had read to angry punks. We read the crowd where the crowd expressly did not like us, you know, and, and you will just not find that today. It's like a real kind of supportive bike helmet generation. And, and, and they're like, it's a little too safe, you know. I think we're just used to being, you no know, kids of the 70s. I guess we're used to being in peril more. Like, it wasn't such a bad thing. We never had helmets or seatbelts or whatever. Like, you know, like, we played with things that were dangerous, and we're just told not to hurt ourselves with them. Now the kids wouldn't even have a chance. They wouldn't yeah. be given something dangerous. Can't, can't buy any lawn jarts today. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a great example. Of just like, hey, you know what? Don't throw these at each other. <laughs> you know, they, but they would still give them to us. Yeah. You know, my dad gave me, like, a, I think it was, like, like eight when I got, like, a bow and arrow. Like, yeah. like a real one. And he's like, you know, don't don't shoot this at anyone. All right, I did anyway. Got that taken away. But you know, yeah, I, I've been hit by pellet guns quite a bit growing up. Yeah, 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 and it was just that kind of thing. Like life was kind of dangerous, and why you and you, and the fun of things is that, like, you know, hey, you know, if I if I spill, like trying to jump this creek with my dirt bike, I'm not. I don't have a helmet or elbow pads. I'm just going to get hurt really bad. And that was kind of the fun of it. And I think that's kind of the mentality behind that whole era of art, too. Just like, you know, we're like one, just like, you know, came up in the Reagan America, where it's just like, you know, everything's fine. Everything's good. Everything's great. You know, your country's looking out for you. And then also like, you know, there's no helmets. Yeah, you know, and I, I think those things kind of made that scene, and I don't think that's why I can exist anymore. As a kid, you know? there was a certain level of popularity in the neighborhood of it. Yeah. That kid's really crazy. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's like I got to be real careful now, like you know, around the young comics and stuff. To like, you know, when I talk to them about you know doing things differently, because you know they've never they've never been told they're wrong. Some of them, yeah, you know, they weren't grown up like you know with like with an adult like telling them to shut up and be quiet or like. <laughs> Or, like, that's a bad idea, or you can't do that, or, like, you're not good enough. Like, they've never told these things. What, what sort of comedy are the younger generation of comics doing? What are their, what are their topics? Um, God, it's gotten... There's a lot of really introspective nerd stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, a lot of, like, like h- how nerdy am I? Like, and it's kind of like the... It's like the opposite of, like, Andrew Dice Clay, right? <laughs> it's just, like... Like, what a piece of shit I am kind of thing. It's like this kind of like emo confessional type yeah. comedy. It's like, like comedy. Star Wars bedsheets like, like, kind yeah, of nerds, stories. Nerds are the big thing. Nerds rule right now. Like, they're not, they're not cool dudes. Like, mm-hmm. they're, you know, it's kind of assumed that you're like, you know, like you're nerds. Like, that's kind of, I think, one of the, you know, generation after Pat and Oswalt kind of made that a thing. And, and uh, they kind of latched on to it. And um, the... Uh, uh, one of the things I do is I, I do longer stuff. You know, I, we call it long form. Uh, kind of the way, like, you know, if you listen to Bill Cosby's records, like, it's, it's like that. I grew up listening to those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's nothing new. It's just that it fell out of vogue for a long time because everyone was trying to get TV sets. 
You want to get mm-hmm. like five minutes of tight TV material. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of comedy lends itself to more like 22 minutes. What is that one? Uh, to my brother Russell, whom I slept with? Yeah, like the whole minutes. The whole second side of that is like a 22-minute bit, right? Most comics would never have that today, but it's coming back. That kind of thing is kind of coming back. Uh, and I think due in part to like the storytelling stuff that's also popular. I think a lot of people have had exposure to storytelling. So to like... If you can tell a long, funny story, I think that's kind of popular now. So that's kind of what I do. I see more people doing it a lot. So hopefully that's the next trend because, you know, I'll be ready. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, you know, a, a lot of stuff is just, you know, where instead of like, you know, like the days of yesteryear, it was just about like something dumb. Something dumb my girlfriend said to me. Now it's more something like, here's something dumb I said to my girlfriend. Like, it's kind of like <laughs> turned around like that. And that's the only, I think, real big thing. Because I think a lot of people now, like, you know, when I hear people being imitated now, I hear a lot of Maria Bamford yeah. being imitated. She's fantastic. I don't know if you know her, but you yeah, should check her out. Sure. And uh, there's like comics that who, you know, she was their favorite comic, you know? And mm-hmm. there's like little Mitch Hedbergs out there. And like, that's... That's almost classics. I mean, you almost don't even hear like a, a Richard Pryor and a Bill Hicks anymore. That's mm-hmm. like, they're they're like, like Jack they're, Benny to us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're they're influenced by much more contemporary people, and it's just like kids, you know, who grew like right now too. What's happening right now is people who got into comedy while they still had a Netflix streaming account, right? <laughs> and they're influenced by what's on there, and that's real weird. They're influenced by what they see on Netflix. It's comedies, instant stream. That's what they have in their dorm rooms. That's what they're watching over and over. Like what's on YouTube, what's on Netflix, and that's their exposure to it. Yeah. So you know they're they're getting a lot of stuff we just didn't have, like you and I. You know, yeah. and uh, you know it's kind of interesting. Like a lot of stuff is more just much more contemporary. And like when someone pops, you know, when someone pops big, like you know, it's they pop a little bit faster. And uh, you can hear it now. I mean, Kyle Kinane has imitators now. Yeah. You know? And he's, like, just really hitting his stride as a comedian. You know? He's just really, like, you know, like, he'll, like, sell out here if he headlines a show, you know, in San Francisco. Uh, but, you know. I, I, thought I thought you were going to say he'll sell out here in the basement of Lost oh, Weekend. Oh, no, yeah. He's, like, a little too small for him. But he's already, you can already kind of hear, like, you'll see these guys get up with, like, a, a beard. Like they're just like him, you know, and like they have a beard and they sound like him and they're doing his kind of, you know, his kind of, uh, you know, I, I drank too much beer today kind of jokes. And, uh, <laughs> they, you know, it's just kind of cool, um, you know, just see how quickly it will come around, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking about the drinking too much beer, you've, uh, you're, uh, sort of, what do you say, a counterculture, uh, you know, twelve step. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, aficionado yeah, totally, totally. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I wrote a couple of twelve step books that are, you know, that are kind of like a. What is is, I, it was it was called Get Up, and, and you know, it was like it was like twelve step recovery for misfits, freaks, and weirdos is the is the is the uh, subtitle. But I was was like, uh, I was like, hey, can we, can we call this like you know twelve step recovery for for punks and idiots? <laughs> And I didn't really want that. <laughs> I had to come up with other things, but that's kind of what it was like. It's like for like a lot of the aging punks, uh, and just like I just noticed all the counterculture weirdos that had a real trouble like accepting, just even going to a meeting, you know. And it's just like just go, it's okay. And there's a lot of us in there. That's the thing. I mean, I, I, 
it's why I wish people weren't so in the closet about what they're doing. I mean, it's it's a program of anonymity, but a lot of people treat it like a secret society. And, and it's really kind of a damn shame because if I could tell you right now the names of all these people that were, like, you know, I've seen in meetings, you know, it would dispel a lot of myths about, like, people not being able to create once they get sober. You know what I mean? Because that was the other thing. It's just like a lot of people were just like, oh, man, if I quit getting stoned, if I quit drinking, or if I quit doing this or that, I can't write anymore. I can't play music anymore or whatever. And it's like, man, I know a lot of people that you know of that never had any success until they quit. But they just, you know, they don't want me to tell you. <laughs> but if you come with me <laughs> this week to this thing, you'll see this guy, you know, like, you know, and they'll like shatter your, your conventions. How many, how um, many years have you been sober? 12. Now? 12. Yeah. Years. So I, I drank for about 15 years and I, I tried really hard to be a writer and I had one book in that whole time. All right. Now in 12 years of sobriety, I've, I've had five books. All right. And I've put out a CD, uh, a vinyl record, uh, and, uh, you know, I started doing comedy. Uh, I appeared, uh, in a Bobcat Goldthwait film, uh, uh Willow, yeah. Creek. Willow Creek. Yes. Uh, the Bigfoot film. Yeah. yeah. All these things that I've done sober that I try to do while drinking and I could not, uh, just could not get it together. I missed a lot of opportunities. Uh, that would be a whole other interview about all the dumb things I turned down or blew off because, you know, eh, it takes a little bit of effort and I'd rather sit around and drink. Um, it's ridiculous the amount of things that I gave up on, and uh, like your people are are who took the same opportunities are now literally millionaires, um, <laughs> and, and uh, you know and, and it was just like you know I thought it was so tied in with my creativity of oh man if I get sober I'll I'll be able to perform I won't be able to write and you know it was all bullshit I, I'm much better now like mm-hmm. there's no doubt in my mind it's better yeah I mean I don't think beer has a reputation for making people more more productive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just like Hunter's Thompson, Bukowski, blah blah blah, yeah, and then like, like look uh, at Aerosmith. They sucked her because they got sober. And I'm like, uh, I don't think you know really Aerosmith. Think when it holds up to. It's funny how many people use that exact one. Like oh, they all went to rehab and they sucked. I'm like, I think they're kind of do. I don't know if they were that great. Uh, they had some good stuff, but mm, I think it was about time in their yeah. career to start. Most sucking. bands were only good, only good for five years yeah, tops yeah. anyway. You know? Four albums in them, like every other band, and you know, just milking it after that. So, I don't know, man. So, so uh, what what did you have to do differently to to get your stuff across to a, a stand up comedy audience from your spoken word days? Oh yeah, uh, timing's real important. Like you know the. Uh, well, for one, too, it's it's just the approach. You're not looking at a piece of paper. You're looking at the audience, and 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 uh, uh, with with the poems, it's really easy to have different poems, and there's breaks, and a poem ends, and like, okay, this next poem is about this. That's all you have to do. Um, in comedy, you almost have to kind of make it sound like you're only talking about one thing, mm-hmm. and then you just talk, and then you have to have these different bits, and you have to have segues and transitions. And make it seem like it's seamless. It's a fake conversation. It's a one-sided conversation. It's not a real thing. It's like you're talking to someone, but you're not. Uh, you make it sound like you replicate what a conversation would be like. And then, you know... It's the best kind of conversation. The kind where you don't have to worry about the other person talking. Right. Like, yeah. If, <laughs> if you just tape, record a real conversation and and then listen to one on TV, you'll like the TV one better. It's just better. Like, it's like, 
you know, it's just written in a way that, like, it sounds like a real conversation. It's a lot better, though. It's not. It's a lot easier to listen to. A lot of people say some dumb stuff. You know, there's there's a lot of ums and ahs and, you know, just stammering and whatever else. And, uh, you know, it's just the way to go. Like, you know, it is, you know, so when you, when you do a, a, a comedy routine, you kind of make it sound like, okay, this is the first time I've ever said this. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just kind of coming off the top of my head. And oh, here's another thing I thought of, and it's all it's all planned out. But it's, there's there's got to be this illusion that it's like, oh man, he's just talking, you know. Especially with the kind of stuff I do, like it really does. I really try to make it sound as much like that as possible. Like, like I've just never said any of this before. I'm just rambling. How, how much material have you dug up in your career? Do you think in your stand-up career? Oh, God, like a, a lot, like a couple hours worth, which is kind of unusual. Like, um, just because of the way. I, and I kind of came to uh, uh, comedy with this whole life already and all these experiences and stuff and this whole point of view, you know, and uh, you know, almost drinking myself to death and, and, like, all these things, like, just having life kick me in the ass a few times, like, it made it a little bit different, you know. Uh, the first comedy bit I wrote was 20 Minutes, and I went around to open mics trying to do it, and they're like, I you get three. And I'm like, motherfucker, like, <laughs> how am I going to, ah, I can't even get started. And I had to learn to write short stuff. Really, um, and uh, so that was the big challenge. I think at first was like, I write something that's short enough to do. You yeah. Know? But what, what were those early short pieces like? And what, what were they about? What were the? Uh, I wrote the twenty minute bit about uh, this really, this. Uh, I dated someone. It was a really bad idea, and uh, I didn't. She was, uh, she was on speed. I was drinking a lot at the time. She was on speed, and she was also homeless, and I didn't know. And I met her at what I thought was her house, but she didn't live there. And that's like kind of the funny part of the story. Just all these things where I should have known all on the way. There's all these huge warning signs, and I didn't know. And you know, I was not in my right mind, and neither was she. And that's kind of part I like to get out. So there's this long thing, and I was like, I'll never do this. And, and then there was this one part I left out um, about a certain tattoo she had, and uh, I. Uh, I ended up making that into a bit, uh, just like this one part I left out of this bigger thing. Uh, <laughs> what was I her also, tattoo? Uh, it was a John Wayne Gacy tattoo. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, that is yeah. a warning sign, I think. Yeah, it's a bad <laughs> sign. Well, you know, uh, well, when I initially saw it, it was really dark in the room, and, and I thought it was a vagina. <laughs> I was like, why does she have a tattoo of a vagina? Because I couldn't really see it. I know, I couldn't really tell what it was. And that was kind of the thing. It's like, why would someone have a vagina tattoo? And then, and, you know, then there's the reveal that it's really a job, I guess. It was a joke about that. And then it was um, uh, kind of my worst moment. I just kind of started picking the worst moments out of my life. Like uh, like my first intervention I had when I was 19, my parents took me to rehab. And they wanted me to stay, and I wouldn't stay. I told them all to fuck off. And I said, you guys don't know me. Uh, you know, and uh, it was really it was really a shameful moment of my life. You know, I made my mom cry, and I didn't care. I was like, fuck you. You know, <laughs> you, you lied to me to get me here. And I wasn't really ashamed of that, so I made some jokes about it, you know, about how my family didn't call them interventions, they call them vacations, you know. <laughs> and it's like the idea that I fell for that twice because my drugs were that good, and which <laughs> did happen to me twice. It took me to two. And uh, the second time they, they put fake, well, not fake, luggage but they had empty luggage in the car because i was checking after that when we went uh, somewhere yeah. I was like make sure they have luggage too and my involvement is the first time i was the only one who brought stuff i was like where's that stuff like 
well, they're not staying. So then after that, they, they brought empty luggage a second time. You know, and it's just kind of funny now. But so I just start like, you know, I, a lot of times, you know, just pick out moments of shame and selfishness. You know, like people, people like hearing about that. They don't want to hear a story where you look cool. Yeah, yeah. They want to hear about a bad, bad decision you made. And uh, once you kind of, once I kind of figured that out, I was like, man, I'm home free. So I tried some other things. I tried writing characters, you know, kind of like the kids in the hall monologues, you know, where they would step off to the side. It would just be like Scott Thompson or Bruce McCulloch doing a monologue. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And that to me, like if I could do any comedy that's not my style, I would love to be able to do that. And it's so good. And it's so hard to do. But when it works, it's a beautiful thing. And I thought, I'll do that. I start writing these characters. People just would not buy into them. And, you know, I'd have this thing where I was running my own show and I'd have like 20 minutes of stage time. I'd start doing this character. They're not into it. I got to do something else. And then I'd just start telling them, like, oh, yeah, here's, here's something that happened to me when I was 19. And uh, everybody would start laughing at it because it was real and they respected the honesty of it, you yeah, know. And yeah. it's like, okay, now I guess this is it. One of my old writing partners said, look, you're a more interesting character than any of these characters that you're writing. So you either got to make these characters more interesting than who you are, or you just got to do you on stage. I said, just do you. Just be you. You're the character. You know, what's you know what's the dumbest thing you've ever done? I'm like, oh, geez, there's so many. I'm like, well, start writing them down, because that's your bit. So, you, know? <laughs> you had a writing partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stephen Brophy in L.A. We uh, wrote this uh, animation company together for a while. Huh. And uh, he, he was always, um, he's always good at finding out where I'm bad. Uh-huh. He, he he can find the broken thing in anything I write, and uh, it's yeah, it's really good to have someone like that. Yeah. You know, we'd write all these things together, and and like he just fix them. You know, I'd have like these good ideas, but couldn't really execute them. So he yeah. he just fix all these things, and uh, you know, so I still I'm still in touch with him all the time. I mean, he's one of the, he's one of the only people I will call just to talk to. Yeah, I don't know if there's anyone else I'll do that with, like even my girlfriend. Like we don't like I'll wait till I see her, you know. Like I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't really like talking on the phone. But it's like he's one of these guys that it's kind of so important to me. I just I talk to him a lot, and, you know. Just anything, you know. If I'm ever stuck on a writing project, I just call him and describe what I'm trying to do. And while I'm talking to him, it just kind of works itself out. Huh. So I'm like, oh, I can do this. Is or, he do, what's he doing these days? Uh, he writes for reality TV. Huh. Yeah, yeah. He puts together a lot of uh, the plots for those things that you really? think are completely. Uh, Organic. I tried to break that to my sisters recently. Yeah, like yeah. you know, they might just be doing this to make an episode of the show, yeah. and they—it was the first time they ever thought of it. They said yeah. that would be really lame if that was true. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he does. He writes a lot of the voiceover that like kind of fits things together to illustrate. Just like because they'll like you know put some bike together or something, and, and like later they'll come in there with the voiceover goes like they only have. 36 hours left to do this. It's like, oh, they already did it. You know what I mean? It's like, how are we going to get this done? They don't get this. It's it's disaster. You know, it's like, well, you know, or, or just, you know, like, it's getting dark out here and there's predators about. Ooh. It's like, yeah, no one got eaten. I don't think they would be showing this if someone did get eaten by the predator. But he, like, kind of d- writes all these things to build tension in the thing. And just also, when you know, when you have, like, thousands of hours of footage and you're going to end up showing 13 of it, you, you pick. Yeah. What you pick will shape it. It's like, well, if we only show the scenes where this guy's drinking, he looks like a drunk. Yeah. He might have only, you know, been drunk like, you know, five times out of like, you know, you know, whatever, how many weeks we were filming this, but we're going to show every five, every like, time. It seemed like they're being unduly tr- trusting to, to s- submit themselves to oh, reality TV. Oh, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> people want it. 
People yeah. want it so bad. I mean, this is the you know like this. It's just the, the thing they want it. They just start waving money around at them. You know, people are so excited to be even on a prank show. Yeah. You can fucking piss them off, and and they, they all those people in those prank shows signed a release form. If you're if you see their face, they agreed to it, even yeah. if they got to make look like an asshole because they just want to be on TV. I'm, sh- I'm shocked at the people that show their faces on cops. Oh yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. Just like hey, I get to be on TV. All right. Yeah. I'm just like, well, it's your worst moment possible. Well, I'm going to be on TV, right? Get 300 bucks. All right. Craziness. Yeah. <laughs> so what's uh, you're performing uh, as we record this? You're performing later tonight. Yeah. 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 Who are you, who are you here with? Uh, uh, I have a group called the uh, the Business. Uh, mm-hmm. We're a comedy we're a comedy team, I guess. I don't know what to call it. Really, it started <laughs> with uh, basically like I couldn't get stage time. I couldn't get the stage time I needed. Um, you know, I'm too old to go humping at open mics every night. I, and I can't sit around somewhere for three hours waiting to get up for five minutes. I can't. I, I don't have the energy. I don't even know if I have the ability to do it, you know. Um, so, I don't know. I, I just, uh, I was telling about this with someone else. I was like, man, I should just rent a theater, you know, and then just do a show, like, every night, you know? Like, I was going to just get a storefront and just put seats in it and, like, kind of, like, maybe a big thing of coffee, maybe some soup. Yeah. And have some people come in. An AA meeting there. Yeah, yeah, just have some soup and some <laughs> coffee or fucking something. Just, I don't care. Like, you know, it's free. Just come on in and listen. Yeah. You know, I'm like, it's kind of like how Jim Jones did his thing, you know? Like, modeled after Jim Jones' first soup kitchen. <laughs> How could yeah. that go wrong? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> this, yeah, exactly. Yeah, my models for success have always been dubious at best. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm glad that didn't work out. Maybe that would have ended the same way. We should have seen in this the, coming. In the, in Bucky in the jungle. Yeah, 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 totally. He was like crazy. Doing his last night. routine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, everybody drink this. I killed tonight. Everyone. Um, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, so we just actually said, well, okay, I got to go to these other guys, and uh, Alex Cole was the main guy. I, I told him, and he's like, look, just get it one night. Get three other people. I'll be one of them. We'll just split the time. We'll each do half an hour, and uh, mm-hmm. that'll be that. And we ended up changing that to about 20 minutes and getting some guests because half an hour was kind of brutal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could do it just because I'm a big loudmouth, but they're having trouble. But the rest of the, o- over time, you know, people would get – Going a little bit better. Everyone improved. Uh, I'm the only one who did not move away to mm. seek something bigger and better. Because, you know, I got a mortgage and whatever. I can't... I don't know. Just like the the comedy industry doesn't care so much about white dudes in their 40s. There's not really a whole lot of call for that. <laughs> right now, there's plenty of those guys out there. And, like, <laughs> you know, if you need one of those, you can get someone who's much more accomplished than me. You know, they're going after <laughs> Louis C.K. and Patton Oswalt and stuff. Like, yeah. They're not going after me. Uh, like, There's oh. got to be some AAA league out there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, but everybody's moved on, so now we have versions of this show running in LA and New York uh, on a regular basis as really? well. So we got we got this show in three different cities right now. Wow. Um, and uh, one of our former members, Mike Trucker, is now uh, running for the Tonight Show. You might have heard of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had another guy go on the right, we left to go write the Pete Holmes show. Mm. Uh, I don't know what he's doing now, but uh, the show's gone. But we, uh, you know, we've had like a lot of our early guests. Like you know, we've had you know, Kamal Bell was on a bunch of our early shows and stuff, oh. and you know, uh, just a lot of these other people went on to have like you know, TV careers and whatnot, and you know, uh, how's, your resp- guests, but, how's your response been from other comics? Uh, as far as what? As far as uh, the show or me? As far as sh- uh, you and and the show. 
Uh, well, you're saying that you're, you're kind of old coming into it. it what, what, how do the other comics? Well, uh, there's a lot of comics that? now who showed up in in the last like seven years where I've always been this guy, and I kind of give off this air of always having been here, and mm-hmm. uh, I haven't. But they are just like this guy's been in comedy forever, <laughs> and they're kind of really they actually get really kind of amused to find out I did poetry. They're like, what? <laughs> yeah, that's why I had this funny name and everything, you know. Um, you know, it's it's okay. You know, a lot of people like the show. Uh, like it's different. I kind of push people in ways that I don't think they're used to, and that's also the thing of like, where I had to be careful because sometimes like they think they're being bullied or something. But I'm really trying to get a better set out of them. I'm like, mm-hmm. like do this instead. Try this. Do it. Do it. Just try it tonight. Do it. Start with this thing. You know, and. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kind of more daring them. And I thought that's how I get my friends to do something or they get me to do something. I was kind of aware of talking to friends and just karaoke, but some were like, dude, you know, he kind of scared them. I'm like, Oh, sorry. I've <laughs> been, you know, I've been talked to that way before. So, uh, you know, I'm just doing my best to like try to, you know, help out where I can and get help from them too. And it's like, you know, I'm learning from, you know, like 25 year olds how to do something, you know, it's kind yeah. of weird, but you know, yeah. That's great. Well, I guess I uh, say thanks for uh, okay, coming yeah, out sure. and speaking to me, Buck. It's great to see you after yeah, all absolutely. these years. Absolutely. It's called Anatomy of the Pit. The bodies in the pit spin like stories in the imagination of an old man. I don't know how to describe the feeling, but I would never use the word lonely. It can exist without any one person, but stops existing without everyone. I don't know how to describe the motion, but I would never use the word dancing. In that first pit, I felt like I belonged. Here were people like me who had been beaten until the beating didn't hurt anymore. These bodies carved on, drawn upon with heart-shaped bruises. These bodies treated as targets and magnets of scorn. I was them and they were me and we were no longer ourselves. Hold my jacket is just one way my people say, I love you. We have five other words and phrases for love. They are vinyl, guest list, all ages, play faster, and this band sucks. Geodes can form in any cavity that is buried. Pits can form in any show that is crowded. The interior of most common geodes contains quartz crystals. The interior of most common pits contains young, angry people. The size of the crystals, their form and shade of color make each geode unique. The size of the people, their age and shades of anger make each pit unique. Geode slices are sometimes dyed with artificial colors, as are often the people who make up the pit. New Year's Eve, 1988. Bernard's Pub. It was snowing so hard, few showed up to the club. Just me and 30 skinheads. I went there not to see the show, but to see Lisa Cyrus, the most beautiful girl in St. Louis, but she wasn't there. The skins formed a pit, but the band wouldn't play fast enough. There was some new wave disaster. The skins didn't care. They swirled in galactic spiral arms, a universe of docks, white t-shirts, and red braces. I picked out one freshly shaven head, gleaming North Star bright, and wished on it for Lisa to come. About 11, she showed up. It had been several months. I had moved to L.A. and was back for Christmas. Face to face with her, I forgot every word I had planned out on the plane. It was an awkward lull. 
I blurted out, this band sucks. She pulled me close to her by the lapels of my leather and kissed in the new year. Around us, the skins moshed the music only they could hear. Outside, it continued to snow. It was a hell of a way to start 1989. While opening for seven seconds with his band Unified Field Theory, Nikola Tesla formed the first pit ever in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Albert Einstein denied his existence, but Niels Bohr claimed to have predicted them. It's been a long time since I've been in a pit. My bruises disappeared like forgotten stories. Looks a lot more like dancing now. Seems a lot more lonely. But maybe it's just this old man's imagination. One, two, three, four. That's our show. It was such a gas to catch up with Bucky again. You can find out more about Bucky Sinister and where he is appearing through Facebook. You're invited to buy his work through Amazon.com, where you can find his recording Sensitive Badass, from which we heard a few samples on today's show. On our next show, we'll be speaking to Henry Plotner, a musician who composes some vigorously loopy instrumental music, who recorded his first release, Fields, on the Holy Mountain label at the age of 11. You can reach me through Fun to Know with Dan Buskirk. That's the numeral two on Facebook. Special thanks to my lovely wife, Carrie, and my young son, Matt, for their support and inspiration. And I hope we meet again for another episode of Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.